This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host and licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. And if you are new, welcome. Each week I answer your mental health questions. There are no weird or wrong questions to be asked, but I answer the ones that get the most thumbs up, meaning the most people find, you know, want the want the answer, want to hear some insights or some hopefully helpful tips and tricks and ways to manage. And I get these questions over on my podcast channel, which on YouTube is called Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the name of the podcast that I do with my husband, Sean. And so AKA lives over there. So in the community tab, every Sunday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, I post asking for your questions and you can pop them in and then I pick the top ones. So without further ado, let's get into the questions. Now this week, I only have seven and that is because on these seven questions, we had so many comments and add-on questions. So each question is really like six. So we're gonna try to get through this in a timely manner. Now, question number one says, hi, Katie, I hope you're taking care of yourself. I'm working on it, work in progress as always. Can you talk about the boredom that comes with being okay? It's a great question. I've been experiencing extremes for so long, manic, suicidal, and that on the days and weeks where I am more stable, I can't deal with the boredom of not having those extreme emotions, and I often end up deliberately triggering myself to end the monotony. Could you explain why this happens and how to deal with it? Keep up the great work. You are truly helping so many people. I'm so glad. And I thought this was a great question. There's a lot of add-ons onto this, as I said initially. When, For those of you who don't understand maybe what the question is, when we get, get so used to having chaos in our lives and feeling very unsettled when things are okay it can actually be triggering and it can make us for a lot of my patients they'll say i'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop right we can be hyper vigilant or on edge waiting to see what's going to come next because we're so used to things in our life going wrong and i've struggled with many of my patients trying to get them to come to terms with feeling okay being okay which i know for other people out there you might be like but wouldn't you be excited it, when we don't know something, when something is foreign or an experience we haven't had a lot of, it can be uncomfortable because it's not something that we're used to. And so the question here is just talking about the boredom and how do you deal with it? Now, honestly, the best way, and this this comes from actually advice that I received from my own therapist, is to acknowledge the discomfort and allow it to happen anyways. Because a lot of the, when we're trying to change behaviors, the main reason it's difficult is because we're used to or accustomed to the way we used to do it. Even if it was unhealthy and super toxic, we know what to expect, right? It's almost like, um, you know, if I'm, I'm used to relationships going poorly, when one goes well, I'm like, wait a minute, what's the catch? What, like, I don't trust it, right? Because I always assume it's going to be the one thing that I'm used to or the one thing that I'm expecting. Does that make sense? And so we can do things like sabotage. 
meaning we can pick fights with people. If this is relationship-based, we can pick fights with people until they act in the way that we're expecting them to, which honestly we see a lot online where people will poke at people and keep calling them a certain name or saying that something happened until that person erupts and acts in, you know, in a way that maybe seems like what they were already saying that person is. And they're like, ha, I caught you. And you're like, no, you just instigated a scenario. You just sabotaged. You just created something that you swore already existed even when it didn't. And we can do that to ourselves because we're used to things being uh, uncomfortable or really drama filled or we never know what to expect. Life feels chaotic. And in the chaos, we find comfort because, again, it's just what we're used to. And so the way to stop it is to, because I can talk about this and I feel like I'm talking in circles, so let's get more focused is to recognize we're doing it, which you've already done. But for those of you who haven't, start paying attention to when we start to do things in order to create the chaos. Is this a text that is sent? Is this an action that we take in our home or in our life or at work? Is it, do we like set ourselves up for failure? Um, meaning, you know, like we know our boss is already riding us at work and we purposely don't get up on time and drag our feet and end up running late and then getting chewed out. You know what I mean? Like, what are we doing that's causing us more upset and more drama or more chaos? If we can recognize those early symptoms, track it back. Sometimes it's easiest to look at the last time we did it and see if we can see the symptoms from there. A lot of times that's easier than in the moment because we can feel like we have no decision to be like to make. It's more just an impulse to sabotage or to create chaos. And so we can look back at that last example that we have in our life and try to figure out when we started to feel bored and when we started to create the chaos as a result of that boredom. And if we can find some red flags, it might be that we feel on edge. Our anxiety might go up because we're not distracted with the chaos. So many of my patients and even you, even my viewers will tell me that they, when there's no chaos, it's almost like they don't know what to do with themselves and it makes them more anxious because there's no distraction. So that discomfort starts to build from the essentially nothing going wrong. And in that discomfort, we lash out, which will then cause the chaos that we were already hoping for slash expecting. And then we'd feel comfortable again. Right. And so if we can just recognize maybe when we feel our anxiety, maybe peak, maybe that's the red flag. Maybe it's when we find we, we find ourselves filled with urges to do things we know aren't healthy. Those thoughts just keep floating into our brain, right? Maybe that's the red flag. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's different than that. Maybe it's when we find ourselves like binge watching Netflix or zoning out in other ways, distracting with other. Maybe we watch more reality TV show. I had a patient once who, in order to kind of wean her off of her own drama in her life, she would try to tap into like reality TV drama as a way to like get that fix without creating it. So those are just some of the things that I've seen and some of the things I've heard. And hopefully that maybe helps you see the patterns or the red flags for you because the sooner we can recognize that it's happening maybe we're able to identify that boredom feeling that's always it's some kind of i don't know for some people it's very difficult for some of us not so if it's easy maybe that's your first clue and the best way to manage it is to acknowledge what comes up for you i know this answer sucks but there's no magic way to like oh do this instead i mean you can do opposite action which if you don't know in dbt or dialectical behavior therapy opposite action means my impulse tells me to sabotage but instead i'm going to thoughtfully respond or i'm going to be more conscious about how i interact or you know we just do the opposite of what that impulse tells us now is it hard yes is it effective 
Yes. So that's one way that we can just, you know, not do it, like flip the script, not do that thing. But for me, when I was changing unhealthy behaviors in my life, it was recognizing that comfortable is not good, which I know sounds weird, but doing things that are comfortable is only going to lead to the same result. And since I don't want that result, this is what I would remind myself. I'd be like, if I keep doing this, I'm going to keep getting the same result. And that's not what I want. I actually want something better. I'm sick of this type of relationship. I need to get out of this. And so I, because mine was specific to relationships, is I'd be the people pleaser and it had been friendships and romantic relationships where I was doing all the work and there was no shared anything. Um, and then it became toxic for me. So recognizing that I would say, you don't want that. You And then I would force myself to think back, be like, remember on an old relationship that didn't go well. I'd be like, remember that didn't work out. You want something different. So what are you gonna do? And I would do, you know, I'd be like, nope, we're gonna sit with it. It's okay. Discomfort's actually healthy. And if it got to be too much, I would distract. I would do, I would journal. I would also go for walks. I would call a friend, a healthy friend. I would, you know, clean or organize my apartment at the time. I was in Santa Monica on Fifth Street. I would do all of those types of things. And so finding some coping skills or ways to distract is helpful too but allowing yourself to sit with it and recognizing that that this change that you're making even though it doesn't feel good now is good does that make sense so those are some tips and tools now a comment on this that i would like to add to this question so i have complex ptsd and it is so challenging at times to make the next right choice totally get this and for those of you who don't know complex ptsd is when we have repeated trauma in our life And it pretty much presents like PTSD, but it has an added component of interpersonal issues due to an inability to regulate our emotions. We can fly off the handle, feel very irritable, and it can lead to, I mean, and PTSD can have this too. I just find complex PTSD is more, it's more intensive and it's more palpable. It's like running through our life, you know? Um, And so understandably so it's challenging at times to make the next right choice it's like my brain is wired to expect trauma so i tend to engage in self-destructive behavior when things seem to be going well i find this urgent need to self-injure or engage in other things that are harmful either psychologically or physically i feel like i have nothing important to say or to give if i'm not in crisis interesting being kind and self-compassionate or yeah is extremely difficult and tends to increase urges It makes no logical sense to me. Is this at all normal? And how do you combat these extremes and just breathe long enough for the urges to self-destruct pass? This is a great question. And for this person who asked this, I'd be very curious because this, this this sentence said it all to me. I feel like I have nothing important to say or to give if I'm not in crisis. So I would challenge you as a journal prompt or something that, and this isn't something that you maybe can answer in one journal. This might be something you kind of work on and think about and contemplate over weeks is who are you, if not your trauma? What are the things about yourself that you do not associate with the trauma or this complex PTSD or whatever you want to call it? What's, what is, what is that? What's left? Is there anything? Are we so wrapped up in our struggles that we can't see ourselves separately? Because that's kind of what I feel is happening here is that you're not important or valid or even someone that someone would want to hear if it's not a crisis, which could be part of that, what I just said, like how how you define yourself or who, who you are. And 
don't if you don't have the answer don't worry i'm going to get into other options because i know trauma can also cause us to not think very highly of ourselves that shame spiral it can get us sucked into right we might not have a good sense of self as a result of that and so of course we might not think anything is valid unless we're in crisis but i also am curious like in your family so this is another potential thing to think about just be curious about again not judgmental we're just going to be curious is like in your family growing up was it only those who who were in crisis who got attention i'm very curious about that and in your relationships in general so okay that was childhood but now in your adult relationships do you find yourself in relationships where there's constant crisis or constant chaos i'm curious about that because i suspect that there's something in there in your brain like a deeply held belief that in order to even have the right to exist you have to have something horrific or a crisis going on but i don't know if that's true you let me know but be curious about that because in order to make the next right choice again the difficult thing when it comes to changing behavior is just creating space for a decision to be made right because the impulses man those fucking impulses they get so strong and we feel like there's no decision it just boom we do it right and that's why impulse logs i cannot recommend them enough you can just go to I think it's self-injury. I'm going to actually pull it up here, but I think it's selfinjury.com. Yes, selfinjury.com. And you can search for their impulse log. I'll actually put this link in the description for you. I'll copy it. But they even have a video in there um, of telling you, walking you through the impulse log and how to use them. And for those of you who don't know, an impulse log is really just creating that space to make a decision instead of acting impulsively, which it's okay if we try to pull out the impulse log and we already do the thing before we even get into it. It's okay. We're, it's a process, not perfection, right? Now with the impulse log, we are going to, um, first note where we are what time of day it is you know what's happening with us what's the urge what's the impulsive thought or the urge what's the thing that we want to do what's what are some alternatives of what we could do and i think actually before that it's something about like what feelings are coming up like what is it that we're experiencing or what is it we're trying to express through that action right if my action is to sabotage what am i really feeling i would i challenge you it's probably not boredom it might be that you're actually not distracted by chaos and so you're stuck with how you feel so what is it that you feel that you're trying to run from probably hurt or pain maybe even excitement or happiness because those feelings can be just as triggering for many of us so just it slows it down it, it gives us an opportunity to make a good decision because otherwise we just act on impulse and we react, not respond. And so those are just some of the tips and tools and things that I would encourage all of you to do if you're struggling with being okay and being okay with being okay, if that makes sense. Those are just some of the things that we can do to try to slow our impulse to self-destruct down because we all have them and you know we can all get addicted to that up, down, chaotic, you know roller coaster of life but we know long term that's not the best for us and so between the impulse logs just being curious about the experience noting the triggers and maybe the early red flags all of that can help because then we can put in place some other tools like impulse logs coping skills um seeing our therapist adding in group therapy and you know all the things like that and if you're looking for coping skills and you're like i don't even know how to come up with these you can just get on youtube and search katie morton 25 coping skills that video will pop up 
and I, and even the, the comments are filled with other ideas of for them so i would encourage you to check that video out okay let's move on to question number two and it says hey katie do you have any tips on how to live for yourself and not others as a chronically suicidal person the only reason i am here is to keep other people happy i don't want help or to be alive but i do i constantly flip-flop between this um, and was wondering if there's a way out. I can't stand the idea of living, but I can't bear to think about the pain that I might cause others. Any advice would be appreciated. Thanks. Now this had a ton of comments and questions below it, but let's just do them one at a time. So this first question, living for yourself and not others. The truth about, um, about this is part of DBT. And the reason that I love that style of therapy so much is that a huge component is what we call building mastery. Now, in order for us to feel confident enough about ourselves, in order to do what we need to do every day and to be be a, a person, a healthy person in relationships, we're going to have to feel good about ourselves just a little bit. And building mastery is a, is a huge component of that. Now, what, what I mean by building mastery is taking something that we kind of do okay and getting better at it. This could even be taking something we have no idea how to do. Like, I'm going to learn how to play the guitar or I'm going to learn how to... I don't know, do yoga, or um, I'm going to read more books or whatever. It doesn't matter. Picking something that you, you're doing okay and then getting better and better and better at it. Maybe it's like a recipe we want to, you know, perfect. Taking the time to do that and trying to build that mastery will help you feel confident about who you are. And it's really important for all of us to have things that we feel we are good at. And so that's one component of trying to build that internal worth. Okay, so building mastery is a huge thing. Now, another is, and this might seem counterintuitive, this isn't living for others, but it's helping others, is volunteering and putting yourself out there and doing positive things for other people. Now, I know you're thinking, but I want to do it for myself. Yes, but every time we do helpful, loving things for others, this can be as simple as leaving kind comments across the internet. I do that on days when I'm feeling really terrible because it just makes me feel good to know that I could possibly maybe brighten someone's day. And so I'll go in these, you know, swings of doing that for a period of time. And then maybe I take a break, right? But that's one easy way to put positive out there because you'll get just as much good feeling back from it. Also, something that I used to do pre-COVID was volunteer at, you know, local shelters and make breakfast maybe on a Saturday for the homeless people or the women's shelter. There's different things, places you can go and volunteer your time. You could also, you know, volunteer to help out any of your local schools or libraries or churches or just getting involved and giving back can make you feel that much better. So that's another thing. And yes, I think, you know, I know that people might be saying, but then I'm living for other people. I'm just telling you ways to get your self-worth and your positive thoughts about yourself up. And that's another way. And then, and I know we're suicidal, but I have to say that I really encourage you to potentially consider medication and obviously get in therapy. And if you're doing both those things, that's wonderful. I just wanted to put that out there for anyone suffering. There are people like myself and medication has been shown to be effective. So know that there are resources available and it can and will get better. And so then the last little tip that I will give is to notice your thoughts and to check your facts on said thoughts. So the way that things work is we have thoughts come and go all the time in our brain. 
but it's the ones that we react to, meaning we have feelings about those thoughts. A thought comes in and we're like, oh my God, I'm such a bad person. Why would I even think that? Or, you know, um, let's say the thought is something nasty about myself, like I'm such a lazy, stupid piece of shit. Then in my head, I can be like, yeah, and, and I don't, it's just, you're just so terrible. And I like glom onto that thought and because I have feelings about it and then I feel worse about it, right? the shame spiral gets hold of me and then I act out of it, which is kind of, you know, what we're trying to circumvent this whole situation. And so in order to live for ourselves, we're gonna have to notice our thoughts. And then instead of trying to make them automatically positive, you guys have heard me say this a thousand times, we're going to have to, to try some bridge statements. Like even right now, a good bridge statement for this would be, it's possible that if I try, you know, to use some of these tips and tools, that I could live for myself and maybe feel even okay living. Maybe I'm open to the thought that this could happen. I'm not really sure. And you know, it's hard, but I'm open to it. Right. And, and it's not that that's a positive statement, but it's not a negative one either. And we're just trying to bridge the gap over into more positive thoughts from this kind of negativity land that we're living in right now. And so that, that's really, you know, my advice for that. And again, I cannot, I cannot tell you enough how important it is for you to be in therapy and consider medication, see a psychiatrist and get assessed. Um, it can really help, okay? And then doing all those things to build our worth will help pull us out of that. But it is very normal. I do want to just let everybody know that when we are suicidal, it is very normal to live for other people. And one more tip, sorry, this just popped into my head. I had a patient who's struggling with this for a long time and it was feeding her eating disorder. And something that I had her do was make a list of the things that she wanted to do in her life and make make the list because her list was actually again it's like this it was for others like she didn't want to miss her sister's graduation and she didn't want to miss um you know going there was a vacation her mom wanted to take her on she didn't want to miss that because she knew it was important to her mom and I don't care if these things are for others right now to be honest in the moment until my patients feel better or more stabilized, meaning not so suicidal, anything to keep you alive, I'm okay with. So I don't want you to think again, that this is like terrible, nasty, whatever. It is something that we would want to improve. But for right now, we just want to make those suicidal thoughts go away and whatever's keeping you alive, we can hang on to that. And that's okay. Okay. I was just offering some tools because this person's wanting to get out of it. And so those are some ways to get out of it. Okay. Moving on because I'm getting caught up. One of the questions on this is a comment says, I struggle with this too, actually, for a long while now, but I never say anything because I don't want to be seen as crying wolf by talking about it or being viewed as just another borderline, even though I guess I am. I am a borderline trying to get my shit together instead of using it as an excuse, LOL. That's wonderful. It is hard, I know. Um, I keep going for others, honestly. Thinking about taking my life gives me a sense of relief at times. Of course, it can be like, we can feel like it's our way out, you know, but again, I just want you to know that these feelings will go away. It's not forever, even though our brain tries to tell us it's forever. Okay. It says to know that I have that control if I really want it is enough to satisfy the thoughts, I guess. So it's more passive. That's good. Yes. I know it's not healthy. Just being real. I constantly feel numb and empty. Thanks BPD. I don't feel connected to others emotionally. I care about other people, but as far as having actual feelings, I don't. I know it's a coping mechanism I developed because a lot of people I've become attached to have left me growing up, hence BPD and fear of abandonment. Totally makes sense. 
I feel like it would be a burden on others if I did anything serious to end my life. I would rather live with the nothingness than to know that I caused others pain, even though I know that they would be fine without me. Honestly, the only thing that I think I would, or the only thing that would truly miss me is my service dog. He literally, he is literally what stops me. That's why I always encourage if we're struggling with suicidality, get an animal. They rely on you and that can help get us up and out. It's good for my depressed patients. It's good for my suicidal patients. It's good for, for all of us. Even though sometimes I think he would be fine too. I feel like he's given me so much that I owe it to him. And that's mainly just like a comment, but I wanted to read it because I thought it was a lot of people said, yeah, me too. That really makes sense. And having an animal is really helpful and it's something that i encourage my patients to get when they're really struggling because again they count on you and we don't want anything bad to happen to them and so if you're out there and you're having a tough time maybe you know foster a dog for a little while or a kitty cat someone asked why do we think like this now the reason that we think like this is because when we're feeling hopeless because i, I think the one thing about suicidal thoughts that people who haven't had them don't really understand is just the extreme darkness of it. Like if we're struggling with suicidality, we can't see our way out. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. Everything about our thoughts and our belief system around our life right now due to our depression slash suicidal thoughts is that it's never gonna get better. It's, it's very black and white. It's very, everything is horrible. I'm horrible. There's no room for gray. There's no room for any positive thoughts. It just snuffs them out. As quick, even if they try to bring it, it snuffs them out quickly. And so that hopelessness that it's never going to get better is just overwhelming. And so that's why a lot of us will think, oh, you know, it just gives me some sense of relief to know that I could get out if I wanted to. Now, I know for those of us who haven't had suicide thoughts, you're thinking that's so extreme, but you have to understand the pain that comes with that hopelessness because it, it again it just it feels like there's no relief and but i'm here to tell you that it does pass and with proper treatment it will pass more quickly and so please 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 if you are out there and you are struggling with any of these thoughts please call the suicide hotline call your therapist text a friend you can get a uh, text crisis text line 741741 just text hello they're there to support please reach out because it does get better. And the reason that we, you know, the reason we think like this and the reason our brain gets this way is really because it's lacking in serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine. And from what I've read, and I'm sure there's more information out there because I can't read all research articles, but from what I've read, we don't really know why certain people become suicidal and others don't. We do know there is a core, like a correlation to family, meaning like a genetic component, which we know with all mental illnesses, having someone in our immediate family who struggled with the same thing, you know, it just makes us more predisposed, but it doesn't mean that we're going to experience. It just means we could, right? And it, because we feel so hopeless and helpless, it can be easier for us to, to think about others right because we don't have any self-worth we don't think that we're worth anything hence that hopeless feeling right everything's horrible i'm horrible we have no room for positive thoughts we can look out at someone else in our life who we love and we can be like i don't want to cause them pain because it would just make me even a shittier person right and that sometimes is the only little light that we can find and like i said if we're really struggling and we don't have that much support i'll take it that's okay it's okay to want to live for someone else because it's in your recovery from these suicidal thoughts and depression that we can muster up some sense of self, some love and compassion for yourself and all you've been through so that you can start to appreciate yourself more. 
and know that, you know, you should stay alive because you're important and you're valuable and people love you. But when we're in the midst of it, we just can't see that, you know? There's another question that says, how do you cope with having a suicidal mother? My mother's been chronically depressed for what feels like my whole life, and it's been really hard on my entire family. She used to have emotional breakdowns in front of me and my siblings and even told us she would probably kill herself if we didn't support her more with the chores. What? Is that emotional parentification? That's emotional abuse, actually. It's far better now, but I still feel like these are not things a parent is supposed to share with their children. 100%, your mother has no boundaries, and that is not healthy behavior at all. I notice that whenever she's stressed out and shares it with me, it stresses me out too and overwhelms me emotionally. Of course it does. And when that happens, I just want to leave the situation as soon as possible. Is that reaction normal? 100%. First of all, you do not have to be a, a dumpster for your mother, meaning you don't have to be a receptacle in which she can dump all of her emotional pain into. That's what a therapist is for. Not a child, especially not a child. I mean, and not even a partner, really. It's best for a therapist, but at the very least, if it was like your dad or whoever, you know, if she's in a relationship with someone, that would be an equal relationship where they're both adults and, you know, they can decide what they're willing to listen to or not. But you're removing yourself from the situation and getting away is 100% normal. And I would encourage it more. If your mother tries to do this, if she tries to throw, like have an emotional breakdown, saying she's going to kill herself, I give you full permission to say something. If you don't even have to say something, but something you could say is, mom, you don't have to do this in order to get us to do things. This actually isn't really helpful. And I don't think it's really appropriate. Or when she starts doing this, you just walk away. I give you full permission to just walk away. That's emotional abuse. It's that manipulation. I wouldn't be surprised if your mother isn't struggling with her own, I don't want to diagnose her, but anything from narcissism to untreated borderline. Because the thing that people don't understand is if people can have a diagnosis, people can be narcissists and have borderline personality disorder, have, you know, depression, anxiety, any number of diagnoses. But if they're, if they're at least aware and doing their best to try to manage the symptoms, most likely it won't affect us on the outside. Maybe once in a while we'll get in arguments that we maybe shouldn't, or we feel like, you know, they said something hurtful, we said something hurtful, but you know, things will happen because it's life. But your mother, it doesn't sound like is even acknowledging her own issues, getting any support, and instead is pulling you all into this, this horrible shit spiral of, of chaos and it's abuse. And so that's why holding boundaries around what you're going to allow her to say to you, how you're going to, well, and it's not even like what she can say to you, it's what you're gonna be, allow yourself to absorb. Meaning she can say whatever she wants, we can't control her, but we can walk away. We can remove ourselves from the situation. When she's throwing a fit, we can just walk out of there. And we can also hold up boundaries around how often we're gonna even see her. I mean, I don't know if you live at home, I would assume you maybe do, and so this might mean that we stay at a friend's more often or we have more events going on or we're just out of the house more because that's just not really healthy and it's super, super toxic. And so the more you can distance yourself and separate yourself, I know it can feel really hard when it's family to separate yourself, but consider what relationship, and this is part of the grieving process when we have a parent that's men, that has a mental illness, is what's the parent that we would have hoped to have gotten, right? a loving mom who isn't depressed or suicidal telling us she's trying to kill herself, that would be for starters, right? What we'd hope. 
But what is it that our mother is able to give us? And maybe all she's able to give us is like one normal conversation a week or like a very light conversation about nothing emotionally charged. And how do we grieve the difference between these two lists, right? The hopeful list and the reality list. And then just holding to that reality list. And I know it sucks and I don't want to pretend that this is easy or make light of the situation. But again, just because she's your mother doesn't mean that you have to be the dumpster that she throws all of her emotional baggage into. That's not your responsibility. That's not okay, actually. And like I said, it's emotional abuse to say things like, I'm going to kill myself if you don't, you know, it's emotional manipulation or what I would call emotional blackmail. And I, I do not support that. We are all responsible for what we say to others and the actions we take towards others. And so you don't have to put up with that at all. Okay. And moving on, an add-on says, and what do you do when you feel like you're wanting to die, but not actively suicidal? Sometimes not even in a depressive state. That's a, a common misconception that suicidality always comes or accompanies depression. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, just constantly waiting and wanting this. I've been diagnosed with complex PTSD, anxiety, and depression. I know it's probably depression, but since early teen years, um, I have felt like all I am really wanting to do is die, no matter how much I accomplish or how loved I am or how happy and healthy I am. I've been in therapy and I've been on medication in the past and it helped the symptoms a little, but I still don't want to be here. I feel like I'm in almost constant emotional pain and turmoil and I've worked through a lot. I'm just not sure what else I can do for any of the trauma stuff. Like, how do I let it go? What does that even mean? And I've tried everything with my trauma, ignoring it, working through it, researching and trying to accept it and move past it. But it's like an annoying a child, annoying child that follows me around and I can't get rid of it because it's imprinted on me like a duckling. So how do I let go? I just hate this feeling. I hate feeling this way. And I just want to feel, I want to feel like life isn't just full of wanting to die. Now, Honestly, I would encourage you to try another medication because I have had patients have extreme success on medications and there are new medications for, especially for suicidal thoughts and suicidality that have come out recently in let's say the last like five to six years. And I would encourage you to try another pretty, pretty please, because you said it did help something with the symptoms. So even if it helps a little bit, maybe that means we should have increased that dose or, I mean, talk to a doctor. Again, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm just speaking out of experience with my patients and it may mean that they need to add something on to it or whatever. You know, you have to talk to your doctor, talk to your psychiatrist, but I encourage you pretty, pretty please go back in and try medication again because, and you said you've been in therapy and been on medication. If we're not now, I would encourage you to get back into therapy and therapy. I would actually encourage you to look for is like kind of what I would call alternatives, meaning I don't think talk, because it sounds like you've talked through it and talk therapy only works for, I think it's uh, because 65% of us, it doesn't work for. So 35% of people find full, you know, I don't know if if you want to call it full remission of their symptoms, but they feel better after going through talk therapy for PTSD. However, the other 65% of us do not. And we're going to need something additional, whether that is medication, whether that is EMDR. Um, if you guys don't know, it's the eye movement desensitization reprocessing. I have a video on my main channel with my good friend, Dr. Alexa Altman, who does EMDR, where we talk about it. There are um, others 
therapies like somatic experiencing where you use your body to move the energy out. Anyways, there are a lot of different things. Vagus nerve stimulation, something called stellate ganglion block that I talk about in my book, Traumatized, that is available for pre-order now. Um, but any of those things can kind of help us work our way through the trauma in other than just talking. Because I think that we would all agree there are some things that are just hard to put words to. And so we can find other ways to process it. And I find that then, you know, obviously that is the most helpful. And so that would be my encouragement for you is to, you know, find another way to work through the trauma and please consider medication again, because it did help some. And I think if we found just the right fit or increase the dose, we could potentially get rid of those symptoms altogether. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. Like I said, these are very long questions. That's why we only have seven today. And this question says, why is it that there is so much shame with sexual abuse and trauma? Like, how can someone feel such shame and guilt about something that wasn't their fault? It's an interesting question. And when I read it, just thinking about it, in a logical sense, it doesn't make sense, right? Like you're saying, it wasn't even our fault. So why do we feel such shame and guilt about it? It's because of the fact that something happened to us that we can't make sense of, right? It doesn't make any sense. There's no logical way to explain why someone would abuse someone else. It's, you know, a special place in hell for those people. And I'd like to punch them all in the throat and potentially push them off a cliff. Um, but because we can't make sense of it, especially when we're children. So here's how it usually happens. Okay. And not always, just usually, right? Your experience is valid and warranted. I'm just giving you an example of what I see that I find to be very common. When we're sexually abused, we don't, it often happens when we're, we're young and we can't consent or it's done in a way where, again, we can't really make sense of it. And I'll get into those other options, those other kind of examples later. But when it happens to us when we're a child, we don't really know what's happening and we don't fully understand what's happening. And so as children, when we don't, we can't tell a story about something. We don't really know what's happened. And the person might even have threatened us. Like you tell anybody, you know, kill your family. People, I've heard from a lot of my patients, unfortunately, that that's been what they've been through is someone will tell them that they're going to harm them or their family if they tell. So they don't. But because we can't really make sense of what happened, we can't put it in a story form. We don't really know, is that person to blame? It didn't feel right, but we're, we're very confused. And so when we don't fully understand something and we can't make sense of it in our brain logically, like why would, you know, someone in our life, uh, uncle or family member, why would they hurt me? They love me. They, that must not, I must not, that's not right, right? I'm not, I'm not right. I don't get it. Therefore, something is wrong with me. There's a reason that this happened to me. And there's a reason that I think it's wrong when, when they tell me it's not wrong. And it gets so confusing, all of those, essentially all of the thoughts and beliefs and what confusion we can have around ourselves and what, what took place that we feel like we're broken and something's wrong with us and we must have done something to cause this. And, you know, they're a perfectly fine person. Everybody else seems to be happy around them, right? We can do that, especially when they're in our family. And so that's why, that's why the shame, that's part of it. And there's a lot of other reasons, like I said. Now, the guilt can come along with the fact that oftentimes sexual abuse and trauma isn't just a one-off. It can happen for years. And I've had many of my patients talk about how, well, and this also builds on the shame. You'll see how these are like 
you know, close cousins, guilt and shame and embarrassment being the third. They just hang out together and make our lives miserable. But when we're dealing with trauma, especially sexual trauma, we can feel like, well, I should have done something right. It doesn't matter how old we, we are. Often I tell my patients when they're having thoughts like this to find a photo of themselves when the abuse started and just so they can recognize how young they were. Because often when we're talking about in therapy, we're talking about as ourselves at this age, like I'm 37. So if I'm in therapy, I'm like 37 year old me is like, what? That would never happen. I'd beat this. Sh like, why did I let that happen? You know, and get really angry at myself. And it's that feeling that we somehow quote unquote, let it happen that we feel guilt around it or i must have done something to lure them right it's like that's what i why i get really angry whenever i hear anybody online or anybody anywhere talking about how well you know he or she whoever was drunk and so you know like they had it coming as if uh that gives someone carte blanche to harm us oh, no, no 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 we are not at fault you cannot consent when you're inebriated that person's still a creep and deserves to be thrown off a cliff, right? The one who did the harm. So it's all of those mixed messages, I believe, and even our internal messages that cause that guilt. As adults out of that situation, even if we're, even if it happened to us when we were adults, once we're removed from it, we're like, why did I let that happen, right? We think that in some way we had the ability to stop it. But if we think back and we do that inner child work and we look at ourselves in that situation or look back at maybe maybe we had had too much to drink we can consider these things and then realize hey and this is what we have the work we do in therapy is being able to say to ourselves at that time hey you actually couldn't fight back like we talk about fight flight freeze right if we can't fight or run away we play dead we freeze and all, i hear from a lot of you all the time especially in abusive situations where we just honestly can't move we we are frozen and then there's that guilt around like, well, I should have done something, right? But our body honestly just shut us down so that we didn't get harmed more. And it's it sucks and it it's horrible to have to process, but that's kind of why we hold on to that shame and guilt as we work through our trauma. Now, the co a comment on this said, um, okay, says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday. It says, please answer, how does a person know if they have any trauma? Because in my junior year of high school, a guy tried to take advantage of me. That's a trauma already. But also a lot happened in this time. The person I told, told ended up moving to a different school in the same school district. I lost a couple of family members. My art teacher I talked to all the time had lost her husband. So I stopped sharing how I was feeling with her. It was right before summer vacation. So the next year, the school didn't want me to talk about it with anyone. Is this trauma? Of course, because you were harmed. You tried to tell someone about it and they didn't help you. And so it's almost like traumatized twice. Again, I think we often assume that traumas have to be these huge events and these like a car crash or we'll go to war, but we can have a bunch of smaller things that maybe in the moment that one, maybe when the guy tried to take advantage of you in the moment, you're like, oh, I really wasn't that scared. I don't think, I don't even know if that was a trauma, but compound that with all the stuff that's going on, right? So it's like these waves keep hitting you. It's like, okay, so a guy, a guy tried to take advantage of me and then um, I lost a couple of family members, trauma, 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 all these little waves, boom, boom, boom. Um, art teacher, you couldn't, didn't have that resource anymore, no more support. And then um, you couldn't talk about it. So then they like traumatized you again. You can't talk about this anymore. And so there was a lot going on. And so that is, those are traumas. 
And honestly, the main way to tell if we are traumatized is if we ever feared for our own life or safety or the life and safety of someone else. Now, that's a, a, a rough definition. But in, in my book, like I was saying, traumatized, that's available for pre-order now, but it comes out September 7th. I have a whole chapter, actually really two, if you consider, because I talk about complex PTSD as, a, as well, but also a whole chapter about like, have I been traumatized? What is trauma? How do we define it? You know, because we often think, again, it's these huge instances, but it can be just this buildup of a bunch of, and I don't even like saying bigger or smaller, but you know what I mean? Things that may be on their own. One of the smaller events, we wouldn't maybe have had such intense symptoms of PTSD, but when you add them all up, because they happen, da, 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 we never catch our footing. Our resilience is worn down and we become traumatized. Um, yeah, and the person just says, um, I don't believe, so I didn't believe it was a trauma because the guy didn't take advantage of me. And I told the school, um, but I've been told it was trauma, even though there was no rape that took place. And it doesn't, doesn't have to be, again, it doesn't have to be a big thing. I would say that that you have been traumatized. Now there was another question on this that also, Katie, why is there extra shame from people when they find out it wasn't just a man abusing a woman? Unfortunately, in our society, a lot of people assume that women cannot be abusers. And I'm here, unfortunately, to tell you that they can. And it's not just females who are sexually abused. Men are sexually abused all the time. I've had many patients over the years, unfortunately, who were abused, you know, men that were abused by women or women that were abused by women. Um, I think it's just the way that we tend to talk about it. Again, it's one of those things. It's almost like people assume eating disorders are anorexic people. Uh, that's only one of many eating disorders and they come in all shapes and sizes, but we perpetuate these narratives because we talk about them, you know, in media and online over and over. And even like I am working on a video right now about child on child sexual abuse. And a lot of people don't even think about that, right? Nobody talks about it. And so anyways, I just, I really think that because it's not talked about enough, it's like compounding shame because we're like, not only did this horrible thing happen to me, right? But then we're like, but I must be really messed up because it doesn't even fall into this this scenario that people assume. And I'm just here to tell you that it's not your fault and that abuse is abuse and it doesn't matter who does it to us. It's still abuse and it, your feelings are valid and you are worthy of getting help and support. I know that doesn't make it better. I know that doesn't make that shame feeling go away, but I just want you to know, I hear you, I see you, it's real. Trust me, I hear it from you. I've seen it in my office. I know that it exists that way and I will do my best to talk about it more so that people know that abuse isn't just a man abusing a woman. It happens, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't discriminate, right? And then the final question says, um, it happened more than once with more than one person. And I think it's all my fault and that I caused it somehow. How can I get over that feeling and belief? And this is what I was talking about at the beginning, how when things can happen repeatedly and we can, if we have complex PTSD, there can be multiple perpetrators or people who harmed us, abusers. And so it can be hard for us to not feel like it's our fault. And I actually have a whole chapter in my book just about why, like, because I've heard from a lot of my uh, patients and I giggle because one of my patients said, what am I just a like a fly trap for, you know, for abusers? Like, why does this keep happening to me? And then, like, you know, she'd been married in an abusive relationship that way. And she's like, are you fucking kidding me? Right. It feels like God's playing a, a sick joke. And the truth about this is that 
unfortunately, when we are abused at a young age, especially, it can cause us a lot of shame. And that shame, if you don't know the difference between like guilt and shame, shame is the belief that something is inherently wrong with you. Like, like I'm broken in some way. That's what shame tells us. Guilt is I did something that was wrong. Does that make sense? And embarrassment is I can't believe I did that thing or, you know, so shame is more, it's deeper because it, it erodes at our, at our own sense of self and who we believe we are because we think something's inherently wrong. And so if that happens at a young age, we find that we can start to not be able to trust ourselves because those things happen to us, right? Let's say it was my neighbor growing up who abused me. And let's say she was my babysitter, but I kept going back because that's where I had to go to get babysat. And it just kept happening to me. And so I, as I get older, and let's say, thank God the abuse stops after a year or two or something, I can feel like, well, I don't have a good uh, compass to make good decisions. So I can't trust myself. So instead of trusting myself, I'm going to trust what other people are doing. I'm going to you know, let other people make decisions, which is very, very common for those of us who've been abused. Cause we're like, I can't make good decisions, right? I did that. So instead I'll let other people, and we can really struggle to properly assess our environment and people in our environment. And because we're used to potentially very harmful, toxic people and behaviors, that's maybe we grew up in a very abusive household that feels really comfortable. Remember back to what I was talking about in the previous questions about that uncom being uncomfortable isn't going to be what we're going to go to automatically, right? Until we've been in therapy and we can recognize that that discomfort is actually healthier than what's comfortable. And so until we can recognize that, and again, bringing up a photo of us at the age when the abuse happened can help. It can help us see, especially as adults, even if I was looking at like 20 year old me, I'd be like, oh my God, she's a baby. You know, it's like, I never feel older than when I go to a college campus and I'm like, oh my God, you guys are children. Cause I still think I'm that age in my brain somewhere. So, but when I'm around people that age, I'm like, holy fuck, I'm not that age. You know, I'm like, Jesus. So think about that and do some of that work. And I think being able to recognize that pattern and why we don't trust ourselves and why we allow other people to make decisions that impact us and how difficult it can be for us to to be in healthy situations like why we almost fight against that or sabotage or prefer to be in unhealthy ones all of that compounded is why you know it can happen repeatedly and it can cause us to think it's our fault when it's actually just the patterns of behavior that were placed upon us whenever that abuse happened whenever it started and it makes it impossible for us to feel like we can trust ourselves. Does that make sense? I hope that, that that helps. And the way you get over that feeling and belief is truly to do the work in therapy. And a lot of it's going to be that inner child work. Now, I know you guys hate that, but I promise you it's super helpful. Again, it's in my book, obviously, and it's toward the end. The, the second half of Traumatize is obviously all about help and recovery and building resilience and how we can do that. And I talk about overcoming this and pulling ourselves out of the shame spiral because you can and the inner child work is really again getting that photo out if you can um but writing letters to our child you know being the one that would rescue them or the one that could offer some support some insight you know you're going to be okay i know it feels like it won't get better some of it's just being the parent that we never had as a child and doing that can sometimes release us from this like spiral that we're caught in if, if that 
I don't know if this is making sense, but I hope that makes sense. Okay. And it, it's hard work. I don't want anybody to think it's super easy, but I trust me, it'll be worth it. You're worth it. It does get better. But finding a trauma-informed therapist or trauma specialist is ideal because they will have different modalities, meaning different types of therapy they can offer to, to get you to a place where you feel better. Now, moving on to question number four. It says, hi, Katie. This is a great question. Do therapists sometimes provoke their clients into transference? Hmm. My therapist says things like, if you were my daughter, I would care how you felt and listen to what you have to say. And it makes me angry because she is not my mom. So it's irrelevant. I've heard from your videos a bit about transference, but it seems like it's something that happens that people don't want or has to be worked through, not something to try for. Is it strange that my therapist does this? What reasons would there be for saying things like this? Is she trying to make me mad? <laughs> okay. I I don't say stuff like this. And I'm sure there'll be therapists out there that disagree with me, but I do not think this is very healthy or helpful. Like you said, it's irrelevant. What would be more helpful would, uh, what I've done with my patients, for example, in this scenario, if I'm taking this sentence, like if, if you were my daughter, I would care about, you know, and listen and all this stuff. I would say instead, if you had a child, how would you want to interact with them? And how do you think you would have dealt with this? So I'm not going to put myself in that parent role because again, like you said, she's provoking transference. It, and I think some, I, I don't believe it's done maliciously. Like, I don't think she's trying to make you mad. I think sometimes therapists let their guard down. Maybe they're overworked. Maybe they're not taking care of their own mental health and seeing their own therapist and overstep because this feels like a big overstep where she's crossing a boundary and causing upset in you, right? Because by placing as a therapist, by placing myself in what I would call the rescue mode, the rescuer, right? I'm like your white knight coming in to save the day. If I place myself in that parental or rescuer mode, then our relationship is different now. And it's not up to me to rescue, it's up to you to rescue you. And so by doing that, I think it's because she probably cares and wants you to know that she cares, but there are healthier, more therapeutic ways to do that. And I believe it was hopefully, we're gonna hope for the best, right? And believe in the good in people. I would hope that it was just a misstep. But I think it is fair to have a conversation with your therapist about this and saying something to the effect of like, you know, when you say that, like, if I was your daughter, I find that really triggering and I I feel like it's triggering transference. I don't want to treat you like my mom. I don't find that helpful. Instead, it would be helpful for you just to tell, to have me pretend to have a daughter or talk to it that way or, you know, to go about it in a different way. You don't even have to have an answer for how you want her to talk about it. But I think that's a, an easy, fair conversation. Not easy. I don't want to say easy because it might be hard for you to advocate for yourself. But I'm just saying it's a simple, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to talk about it forever, but it, it, it is something that should be addressed because that is not healthy. And there is no reason that I would do that to a patient. And like I said, another therapist might be watching this and saying, well, I do it and it helps with X, Y, or Z. Good for you. I would encourage you to leave that in the comments and explain why, because I just cannot see a reason for doing this and any way that this would possibly be helpful for my patients. And, and you are correct. If transference does come up, because it almost always does, it's important to call it out, recognize what it is, and talk through it. Meaning I'm not going to continue to allow you to treat me like your mother or your father or whatever, 
but I'm going to acknowledge that it seems like you're taking out your frustration with your mom on me, let's say. How does it feel to to be able to, to say that and not have me react? You know, we're going to try to work through it, try to understand where it's coming from. We can even do role playing therapeutically so you can talk to me as your mom. And then we can try, I can try to help you put verbiage to what you need to say. Maybe there's other things you can do, but to trigger it like this just feels very unhealthy and very not therapeutic. And I feel like it's, it's an overstep of a boundary, which can harm the therapeutic relationship. So in a way, yeah, it's, I would bring it up and talk about it because I just, I cannot see a reason for doing that. Um, I think there are better other therapeutic tools to use that would get you to the same to the place that I assume she's trying to get you to, which is like, you know, recognizing that maybe your mom isn't very loving or emotionally supportive. What are some ways, you know, that you would have liked to have that maybe like healing that, doing that inner child work, like recognizing the things that you wished your mom could give to you and how can you give that to yourself? You know, those are other, there are other ways to, to get to that same result. Okay, let's move on to question number five. It says, hey, Katie, I was wondering why it is so hard to accept trauma. Recently, I realized I was sexually abused as a child and I keep trying to justify my father's actions. I keep telling myself I'm just being dramatic or that my father didn't mean it that way. Even when it is very obvious that I was physically and emotionally abused as well, I still try to make it seem lesser. Is there a reason why I keep doing this and how do I stop? Thank you so much. So the interesting thing about this, it is very common, first of all, and the reason it's hard to accept, again, is because of that shame and guilt and embarrassment that comes swirling in with a trauma, like with PTSD, meaning that when we feel like something's wrong with us, right, shame, and we feel like we did something maybe to cause it, guilt, and sexual-based abuse can feel very embarrassing, right? We can, I can't believe I even participated in that, right? Or even for many of my patients and viewers have told me, Sometimes when we're sexually abused, we can have an orgasm. Again, that's a physiological reaction. That's not one that we have control over, unfortunately. And that can feel gross. And then we can be embarrassed about it. And it can lead more to the more shame. What's wrong with me? I'm broken inside. It can, And so we can like spiral in with these three things, shame, guilt, embarrassment, you know, over and over and think because this is all, we're all blaming ourselves that the, the perpetrator, the one who harmed us is not to blame. It's, it's I take the blame which is not correct, but it's it's because we feel all that shame and guilt and embarrassment. Does that make sense? And especially when it's someone in our family, it can be really hard. Again, going back to what I talked about, I think it was like question number one or two, but going back to that uh, difficulty in making sense of it, like why would someone who loves me do something that's so hurtful? It can be really hard for us to to come to terms with that and accept that because a parent should love their child. They shouldn't harm them. And it's especially difficult for those of us who maybe only had one good parent or maybe one parent that was active in our lives, right? I see this a lot with my parents who've had maybe an absent father or mother, one that maybe is like a drug addict or they got divorced early and they moved away and they really never knew them. And then they only had one parent that was there. And that's, you know, the good enough, quote unquote, good enough parent. So even if they were abusive, we're like, well, this is all I got. So we like clom onto it. And anything they do, they think, oh, you know, we automatically take responsibility. We're like, oh, I must have done something to trigger that. It's not their fault because it's all I've got, right? And, and we, out of our 
urgency or necessity to to have a caregiver and have someone have a parent we will hold on to them even if it's really unhealthy and super abusive because you know what we don't feel like we have any other options it's it's part of our survival right and so I know that I'm really digging into that but I want everybody to know that that is a very common response and I really believe that the acceptance of the trauma is is due to that shame, guilt, and embarrassment. I think that's at the root. And especially because probably for years, when we were stuffing it down, just trying to survive in our life, we just pretended it wasn't that big of a deal. We talked ourselves out of it so that we could keep going, right? And pat yourself on the back for surviving. I I know, I think it's in the Courage to Heal workbook, they like to talk about themselves as survivors, I think it is, instead of you know victims. Because victims feel so helpless, right? And we're survivors, we got through it. And so, you're a survivor and all all of that what we're now trying to fight back against did have a, a place to assist us it was helpful at that time but now it's not and it takes time the acceptance process can be slow but it's okay give yourself a moment you know recognizing maybe it might even be some of the grief of your of having an abusive father that we have to acknowledge right that we're sad that that relationship was what it was it's hard for us to imagine that a father would want to hurt their child. Again, it's that inner child work. I believe uh, looking at a photo of yourself at that age and imagining, you know, like processing it and thinking about what happened. And, and at that point, you might be able to accept that that was abuse. I was hurt. There was nothing I could do, right? It, sometimes we'll have those aha moments. We might not, but I'm just saying the more we continue trying to at least acknowledge, even though we might fight back, you have that thought like, oh, my dad didn't mean it that way. I would encourage you to, to fight back a little bit. Can we check a fact there? Can we say, but it happened repeatedly and it was the same. So I, he had to have meant it that way. What other way could he have meant it? Challenge those thoughts a little bit. Because again, it's it's an, our old way of thinking that got us through to help us survive. But now it's getting in the way and it's a hindrance. And so if we can just acknowledge it for what it is, start challenging it a little bit as much as we can tolerate. And then again, doing the inner child work will be extremely healing. And I cannot recommend the Courage Deal workbook enough. And I have the link, it's in my Amazon store and I have the link in the description. So if you wanna purchase it there, you can. Okay, now there's a comment on this and it says, that is so interesting to me. I experienced the opposite because I always wish the things were worse for me. I'm wondering why that happens. Why do some trauma survivors, particularly those who've experienced emotional neglect, tend to think their trauma wasn't bad enough and have a desire to make things worse? especially with emotional abuse or emotional neglect because the wounds aren't physical we can't see them nothing was actually done physically to us right we weren't touched we weren't punched there wasn't anything that happened we can feel like we're making it up that we're making it um, into more than it was because again the evidence is emotional it's almost the same reason that people there's a stigma with mental illness because you can't see it. It's not like a broken bone. You don't see the bone coming out of their leg and you're like, oh, we should fix that. Instead, it's all in our brain and you can't see it. And people, you know, want to pretend then it's not that big of a deal. And so it's just unfortunately kind of part of that. And because we didn't have the bumps and bruises and the, the physical ramifications of having someone actually do something physically to us, we can feel like our abuse is lesser than but I'm here to tell you that there is no rating scale or ranking when it comes to abuse. They're all horribly, horribly painful. They all cause PTSD symptoms and they all are worthy of treatment. 
And it's again, it's just part of that shame. It's part of that guilt. It's part of that embarrassment. It's part of what comes along, unfortunately, with abuse. We feel like something's wrong with us, right? I'm making it up. It's my fault. We take ownership over it as a way to kind of help us try to make sense of what happened, even though it doesn't make sense when we're younger. And it's hard to let go of that narrative when we get older. And that's why working with a trauma specialist will be really healing. And so really in a way, it's like our brain tries to tell us, you know, oh, if it was worse then this would be warranted. It's, it's just, it's that old way of thinking that's not helpful anymore. It's hindering you. And so again, checking those facts, not allowing that thought to, to hang around and be correct without double checking it. Um, but it's, it's really, I believe it's again, linked to that shame, embarrassment and guilt. Now this other person says, I'm not sure if what happened to me was actually child sexual abuse and says trigger warning for some detailed description. It says when I was between 14 and 16, my mom and I used to regularly watch a TV show together laying in her bed. During that time, she would often masturbate under the covers. Now I'm not going to read any more um, just so that if it hurts anybody or is it, if, you know, bothersome, but they're asking, would this, would you consider this behavior to be inappropriate or even slightly sexually abusive? 100% that is completely inappropriate conduct. There is no reason that you would want to, and this person said it in there, you know, she never touched her inappropriately, but that is inappropriate. It's the same as I would say to, um, I unfortunately had a girl I went to school with when I was younger, her mom and her shared a bedroom and she would have sex with boyfriends with my friend in the room. That's horribly abusive. Also uh, watching porn with your children around is sexually is sexual abuse. I think so often we assume it has to be, there has to be contact that has to be made in order for it to be considered abuse. And I'm here to tell you that is not true. It is sexually inappropriate behavior. And again, like why would, like the question the person asked, like why would you want to do that with your daughter there next to you? That is very inappropriate. And I would, I wouldn't be surprised if your mom was abused also. That's just very inappropriate sexual conduct and it's sexual abuse because a child is present. Um, yeah, so I just don't know why somebody would want to do that in the presence of their own daughter. Now I avoid watching TV with her and stop coming into her bedroom to say goodnight. I would too. I can't stand her touching me at all. And even though we weren't exactly close before, I've closed off emotionally even more to her. I'm disgusted and ashamed of her and sometimes for, uh, and sometimes of me for continuing the movie nights for so long. What are your thoughts on this? Am I overreacting? No. You are not overreacting at all. I would encourage you to seek out some therapy. There's also, I think it's hopeforrecovery.org uh, and it's the number four. They have some free trauma groups that are available online. I think that that could be really beneficial, but your response is normal. Uh, unfortunately, because <clears throat> what you sustained was sexual abuse and that relationship is, is ruined, you know? Um, yeah, I honestly think therapy is probably the best. I think that that will be the first step in your healing. If it's safe, I don't know. And this is again, I just always throw it out there because you just never know. It, it could be healthy or healing, maybe, maybe not, for you to talk to your mom about it in therapy if she would come. Because again, like I said, it's a very bizarre behavior, something I could never imagine doing around a child ever. Um, and I wonder if she herself was abused. That's a very weird, it's just a very, very weird thing to do and very inappropriate and very abusive. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that. But no, you're not overreacting. This is definitely sexual abuse. And I would reach out and get some support because it does get better, okay? Let's move on to question number six. It says, hi, Katie. I was wondering if you have any advice on how to discuss past sexual trauma in therapy. 
Do you really have to share and relive all the details in order to heal? Not always. I don't think I can say all those things out loud. I've come to realize that I was abused and repeatedly raped by an ex-boyfriend. Everything is so uncomfortable. I've started talking through it with my therapist in generic terms. When I finally decided to tell her the details, she was great, but I was so agitated after that session that I went into a panic attack and avoided the topic for months. Now we're talking about it again. We talked about it at length and about my feelings and what I want from this, but I can't bring myself to tell her the details of all the shameful, uncomfortable, and sexual things that happened. Is there any way around this? Do I really have to unravel all the details to her? Thank you. Now, again, like I said, there's tons of comments and questions below this, like all the other questions, but we don't always, like I said earlier, talk therapy or putting it into a narrative form, meaning a story, right? With all the details doesn't help all of us heal. It does help about 35%. This is what research shows. And like I said, there, there's always new research coming out, but that's, you know, the most current that I could find when I was doing research for my book. So what that tells us is that 65% of us are going to need something else. Now, this could be EMDR. Again, we will have to kind of go through what happened, but you might find quicker healing with less details. And there's also somatic experience. There's also things like vagus nerve stimulation or still like gangling block. There's all these alternatives. Again, talk to a doctor. I'm not a doctor, but I do not believe that you always have to unravel all the details and nor do you have to do it. Even if you come to a time when you feel okay doing it, it doesn't have to happen right now. You do the best that you can. I find it sometimes the most helpful, and you could mention this to your therapist, to start out with a trauma timeline of when, when the trauma first, like your first memory of trauma, and when did that happen? And, and briefly, like what it was, it could be like, even as a kid, it could be like parents got divorced and had to move schools, okay? And we just make this little timeline along as much as we can, you know, maybe first time we were hit or first time that we were, you know, uh, assaulted or raped and put those on that timeline. And starting there can be kind of helpful to see it and how, how our, you know, in our life timeline in a way. And then from there, we can kind of move into the story of each trauma and you can at that time decide how much detail you are able to offer. Again, the most important part of trauma work and my actual, my Monday video with Alexa, we talk about this. The most important part of trauma work is our ability to stay present while we do it. Meaning we don't want to dissociate or become emotionally overwhelmed and thrown into a panic attack or something like that, because then we can't reprocess. So just go at the pace that you are able. You can tell your therapist, I don't know if I'm be able to share all the details. I'll do my best. So at least she knows that, that there is information missing, right? And if, or when you feel able to share, you can. Okay. Now, the, another question on this says, also, what should I do when my invalidation of my own feelings regarding uh, my childhood sexual abuse is getting in the way of telling my therapist about it? I've recently started telling my therapist that something happened that wasn't okay and that I never thought something like that would happen to me. I'm anxious that my therapist will say or think that she thought something worse had happened and that it wasn't that bad when I finally tell her everything. I'm aware that these worries stem from my own invalidation. And she will probably be understanding, yes, as she has always been in the past, but I just can't shake off the feeling that something like this is going to happen. I already tried journaling about the worst case, best case, and most likely uh, scenario, but it really isn't helping. Are we able to talk back to it? Because I think it might be more of a fact-checking situation here, where in order for us to kind of move out of this, we can't do worst case, best case, and all that because... 
we need to challenge the thoughts themselves. And so I would encourage you to, when you say like, because you're allowing these thoughts to live in your brain and they're, they're growing friends and getting bigger and stronger and we need to take away their oxygen. And the way that we take away their oxygen is to disprove them. So we have, it sounds like you've told her some things in the past and she's done well, she's been supportive. Let's write that shit down. Let's write down this false thought of, I'm gonna tell her and she's gonna say she thought it was something worse, which I can't imagine her ever doing. I can't imagine any therapist doing that. And then below we'll write our facts. No, I told her about this and she was supportive. Nope, I mentioned this difficult thing and she was validating. Um, from the beginning, she's been super supportive, right? What are your facts? I don't think you, I would guess, you don't have any facts to support that thought. And so when you don't, I might just draw a line through it and say false thought. And so anytime that thought comes into your head, I want you to some do some thought stopping where you go, that's a false thought, that's a lie, that's bullshit, right? We don't allow it to live in there. And I would do that for some of those thoughts you're having about it that are only making this worse. And that would be, you know, I do that as much as you can, as often as you can. I would even, if you need to write down some of the phrases and the, or the, you know, keep that list with you on your phone of your facts against all of those common thoughts, um, keep reading them, keep thinking them to get it out so that we don't allow it to just sit in our brain and assume that it's a fact just because it's the thought. And other thoughts are not facts either, by the way. I need actual facts of things that happened. And you got this, it'll get better. Okay. Next question says, hi, as a follow-up on these comments, I've also talked about a previous relationship in general terms with my therapist. And because I am completely shut down, when we do, I think she thinks it's worse than it was. Look at that invalidation that you're already giving yourself. In my case, it wasn't abuse, as if that's the only reason we can struggle. It was just me allowing things I didn't want because I thought I had to. Oh, that sounds like abuse to me right there. And didn't want to be a burden. Oh. That sounds abusive. Even so, I'm scared to talk about it in detail because of how I might react now. Why is my reaction so strong when it wasn't even a look at you downplaying this and just judgment, judgment, judgment? It wasn't even. That doesn't matter. It's all about how you feel and what what you internalize as a result. Uh, okay, why is my reaction so strong when it wasn't even assault or abuse? And how can I approach this without making my therapist think something really bad happened? I think I worry that she'll be surprised at how small the events were compared to how I'm reacting to them now. I mean, you can tell her that straight up. You can say, you know, I'm reacting really strongly to them and I'm worried that you're going to think they're not that big of a deal because I, I want you to tell, I want you to say this. If you say this to her, I want you to add this in because I'm judging myself and invalidating my experience and I feel like I might be overreacting. Can you do that? Tell her, because I'm here to let you know that a huge part of being a therapist and what makes a good therapist a great therapist is not being judgmental. It's not my job to judge, it's my job, job to listen and to validate. That's like a huge portion of what I do all the time and so I can almost guarantee with like out any reservations that your therapist is going to hear you and she's going to validate how you feel. She's going to say she, it makes sense and she understands. She's going to try to support you as you work through it. That's what therapists are there for. You have so much judgment. I encourage you to notice yourself talk and argue back because all of this, like, because it's, I don't think it's abuse. I just did what, you know, even, uh, what, how did you say it? It was just me allowing things. So it was something we didn't want to do. But because we didn't say no, it continued. So we felt like us not doing anything is consent. That's not true. 
um, and you didn't want to, but you didn't want to be a burden. So there's definitely this like lack of self-worth, maybe some shame in us for maybe something that's happened in the past. I don't know. Um, or maybe we're just an extreme people pleaser. Maybe we grew up in a codependent household with alcoholism or some kind of issue. Um, I'm just throwing out possibilities. But even so, that doesn't make what happened, it doesn't make anything that happened to you okay just because you didn't maybe overtly say no or fight back and you like willingly partook because you were afraid. That you can still be traumatized. I've, um, you know, you guys know I love my crime shows and there was a crime i think it was a i don't know if it was a movie or maybe a midsummer murder anyway but someone went along with their abuser and went on to you know harm other people because they didn't want to be killed and you can't hear about that scenario and not say oh i, I don't like that was that was abuse like obviously they were abused at the beginning but i'm just saying even going along with the stuff that had happened that's still abusive and that's still us being traumatized and that doesn't mean that it that doesn't it doesn't have to be a certain thing in order for it to warrant our emotional experience all of our emotional experiences are fine and warranted we just have to acknowledge them and stop trying to hide them away and say well it was just this it wasn't that bad i don't want her to be surprised it's just these small things we're already minimizing 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 i encourage you to fight back against those thoughts and say at least for maybe a bridge statement would be well i am open to the thought that katie at least thinks it's a big deal that my feelings are warranted. I don't know if I do, but she, I open to thinking that maybe she does, maybe a little bit, okay? Keep working those bridge statements because all that minimizing is not gonna make you feel any better and it only make you feel more alone and, and worse about what happened. Final question for this week, question number seven. It says, hey, Katie, my therapist has started to bring up that I am doing better and the idea of ramping down therapy the last couple of sessions, but every time he does, it kind of freaks me out. Is this attachment or could it be the fear of losing my safety net? It could be either. I mean, I would talk with your therapist about this, honestly, because this happens a lot. Now, I would talk through some of the progress you've made or even think about it yourself. How are you feeling with, with your work in therapy? Do you feel, again, just imagine that we're not because the thing about therapy that can be kind of complicated is if we talk about it like we're going to take it away, we can't be an honest broker with ourselves, right? We can't honestly assess how well we're doing and make a good decision because we're like, but I don't want to lose this. So I don't think I'm doing well. I would be curious if you agree with your therapist that you are doing well and know that you can take a break from therapy and you can always go back. I've been doing that for years, taking breaks and going back. I mean, now I'm in a new state, so I'm going to have to find a new therapist but that's what I was doing for years. And it's okay to take breaks and come back. Stopping therapy is not, you can never call and make an appointment. This is over forever. Don't think it's so final. It's just a, hey, you're doing really well. Let's take a break and see how we do, right? And so assess, be honest, talk to your therapist about your concerns and you know, know that you can always come back. Now, if our urge, like the freaking out is that we feel like we're going to lose because attachments is just are we do we are we feeling abandoned do we feel like our therapist is our caregiver and we're losing them that's more of the attachment stuff if we feel like they're like a parent and we're not going to have them and we kind of freak out that's attachment 
losing our safety net is when we can kind of have some panic thoughts of like, but what if something happens? What if I feel this way or that way? Or what if, you know, and that could be more safety net driven. I don't know if you've had attachment stuff in the past, but if it's that fear of abandonment, we find ourselves wanting to glom on more, like hold on tighter, that those are little red flags to me about attachment. Whereas a safety net is like, but what am I going to do if I, if I need some more support? And, you know, it's that kind of more of a worry thought about not having that. Does that make sense? I hope so. Now, an add-on question of this is, my therapist is close to retirement age, and it scares me to think of him telling me that he's retiring. I've been with him off and on for about two or three years, I think. I've been like through six other therapists before him with no great luck, but I've made good progress. He does DBT and works on a sliding skill, and no one else in my area will take my insurance. Does, um, oh, and they've called around, gotcha. And I actually feel like he understands, so the thought of losing him terrifies me. Talk about it ask. It's okay to ask, are you considering retiring anytime soon? Uh, therapist, like when I was, when Sean and I were even considering moving, I had to start talking to my patients about it. Now I would assume he hasn't said anything, but you're just, you're thinking that he's going to retire. But I have, I mean, I have therapists and psychiatrists I work, I've been working with forever and they're like still working in their seventies and eighties. So I'm not saying that that's necessarily his plan, but a lot of people still keep some office hours because that's just, they just love what they do. So talk about it, ask, it's okay. You clearly have found someone that really works for you and it was hard to find that. It's very fair to ask. And also just keep in mind that when we do retire or when we do leave, like when I left my practice to come to Texas, you refer people out to what you feel is a good fit because you know them well, right? And some of my patients didn't go with the people that I referred them to, but most of them did, like 90%. And so just know that, you know, you can refer people out and I would assume he'll find someone or sometimes when we're getting close to retirement, I've had other clinicians I've worked with, they'll take on an intern as they're gaining their hours and kind of train them into what they're doing so they can take over. That can happen too. So there are options, but please talk to your therapist about it. It's okay to be scared, but we need to have conversation. Know that it's okay to talk about how we feel, okay? And somebody says as an add-on question, if you're in therapy and your therapist reminds you of how the goal of therapy is not to need therapy, that is the goal, but you're nowhere close to that, still having suicidal thoughts, struggling to cope with life, what do you do? I know it's just a reminder and not them trying to end therapy, but I really shouldn't be out of therapy anytime soon. We can say that, talk to them you know, mention that you're concerned, say, I don't feel like I'm anywhere close to that. And if they say, no, 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 you're not at all. Then it's fair at that point to say, can we not mention that again then? Cause it's just really triggering. We have to advocate for ourselves. Your therapist might not even know that it's an upsetting thing to say. It is the goal. And I actually appreciate and very much love that they, you know, have the same thoughts that I do about therapy, but we don't want to say it if it's upsetting and they just, but maybe don't know that it is. So let them know, tell them that, you know, that that's bothersome. And this one says, and another add-on, what if you're so scared of losing your therapist that you struggle to even let them know that you're doing better with what you originally came to work on? Is this attachment stuff? Sounds like it might be. Feeling like an abandoned little kid without her? Enough reason to stay in therapy and figure it out? Even though the symptoms of my depression have gone down a lot, the crippling fear of losing my therapist is so painful. Yes, tell them about it. Tell them this is happening. It's very much attachment-based, but it is something to try to work on and process through in therapy. Again, trying to understand where it's coming from and trying to, uh, 
heal, maybe do some inner child work, or maybe heal, heal from a trauma in your past when you were a child. Like there's a lot of work to be had there. And just because your depression is better, doesn't mean that everything is fixed. Sometimes like I've talked about like this tree of symptoms. Sometimes when we resolve one of the symptoms, it only leads us closer to a bigger branch where we're like, oh my God, I didn't realize that was also going on. Right. And so, you know, it, it could be that. And it's important that we at least let them know that we're experiencing this because the more they know, the better. Okay, another related question says, as my therapist is leaving the practice, my mom asked how much longer I need therapy. I think I still need to be in therapy as I still have quite a few things that I'm struggling with, including self-harm urges and suicidal ideation. And I also just love therapy and view it as self-care, but I think my parents are just ready for me to move on. I don't care what your parents are ready for. Are you ready for it? it sounds like you're not. So I would tell them that you're not, and that's okay. So my mom's said she doesn't want me to become too attached to therapy and that I should use support in my life other than my therapist. That helps somewhat. I even talk about this in my first book, Are You Okay? About how sometimes it's the blind leading the blind. Like we can only get so much support from friends and family. There is a reason that therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors exist, and we should utilize that. Um, says, I'd like to do both. Is this okay? Yes, this is okay. I would tell your your parents that you still need therapy, that things are improving, but you're not all the way better and that you need that support. I would just push back. It's completely okay. Because frankly, I, I love your parents. I don't care what they need or want. They're not you. They don't really know what's going on with you. That's why you're in therapy. And yes, other support, I would tell them like other support is helpful, but it's not as, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like not as structured and it's not as helpful because a lot of times people don't know. They didn't go to school for years and work in the field for years. You know, there's only so much they can offer. Again, it's the blind leading the blind. So I would say that to them. And yes, it's okay to need therapy. You are completely warranted in that feeling. That's it, you guys. That's our last question. Like I said, we only did seven this week because we had so many add-on questions. But I hope you found that helpful. A ton of trauma-based things, a lot of suicidal stuff and therapy stuff. Just wonderful, wonderful questions. I want to thank you all for being such a wonderful community, wonderful people, and all of your love and support over the years. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.